Friends, it's easy to believe that every detail of our life um, isn't particularly important. In fact, um, it's easy to believe that many of them are random. They fall outside of the main story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 9 is intended to contradict that idea to the very core. We're going to read about how the first king of Israel was found, how he was discovered, and it would seem to be through a series of accidents, events totally random. See, part of what it means to believe in a God who is the Trinity, one being in three persons, is that there can be a unity that runs through a multiplicity of details. And so it is that the story that God sovereignly oversees reflects His own nature. All of this contradicts what the philosopher Aristotle believed. He believed that there was an essential you uh, that, that never changes. It always is the same. And most of the details about your life and who you are, he called them accidents. That includes everything from your position at any moment in time, your location, your place in time itself, your possessions, your quantity, maybe how tall you are, how many years of life you have, your passions, your actions, your qualities, and your relations. He thought of all these things as just accidental to who the real you is. Well, this chapter, again, will contradict that perspective. Now, I'm going to read uh, a longer chapter, about 27 verses. And um, like I said, be prepared. It's going to sound as if it's just a series of random events until you get to the apex of it. When I'm finished reading, I'll say this is God's word. And if you don't mind, you can respond, thanks be to God. And uh, we will begin the sermon from there. So 1 Samuel chapter 9. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphiah, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son Saul, Take now with you one of the servants and arise, go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, come and let us return or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. He said to him, behold, now there is a man of God in this city and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come and let us go to the seer. For he was called a prophet now, uh, was formerly called the seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. 
So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered then and said, he is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city. As they came into the city, behold, Samuel was going, excuse me, was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. And Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning, I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin, why then do you speak to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat because it has been kept for you until the appointed time. Since I said, I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. When they came down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the roof. And they arose early, and at daybreak, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, saying, Get up, that I may send you away. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim the word of God to you. This is God's word. Amen. Friends, the basic story here follows on the heels of chapter 8, where you were left with the question, who will be Israel's king now that God has agreed to let her have one? What we have in this story is the selection of Saul through a series of seemingly random events. We read about Saul's family in the first several verses, an unlikely candidate to birth a king. And then we read about lost donkeys that can't be found, and it almost sounds like a joke. And then, right when Saul's about ready to head home, because his dad might be concerned about how he's doing, His prophet says, no, on the other hand, let's go and consult a priest. 
Then they are struck with the problem. What shall we bring? What gift do we have? We have run out of our resources. And lo and behold, the servant has a quarter shekel. Then they proceed to the city where this, this prophet is supposed to be, but he's actually on his way out. They happen to run into some women at the well who point to the prophet as he is leaving. Then finally, Saul encounters Samuel on the way up a mountain in Ramah. And in fact, the prophet answers, God told me you would be coming. Saul's invited to a feast where he's given the place of honor. And then the word of God, instruction is given to this man who is going to be a new king. What we see here is God's secret providence running through everything, all the details, people's locations, judgments that mere servant makes in passing to go a different way. Friends, this is the doctrine of God's providence, and it is one of the most practical of all the doctrines of our faith. Many of you may know that uh, the Puritan John Flavel wrote a book called The Mystery of Providence, where he says it is a challenge and a responsibility for every single believer to be a student of it. To ask this question, what has God been knitting together through every detail of my own life? How are all of the random events being knit together by him? We're going to look at nine of these, believe it or not. A simple nine-point sermon, I know. It's your favorite. The first of which is this. What Aristotle called an accident is your position. Now, that's not your location. That's actually how your body is positioned. It could be upside down. It could be horizontal. You're normally vertical, except for when you're sleeping. And it might seem to be one of the least relevant things about who you are You might say, whether I'm sitting, slouching, standing, upside down, or right side up, I'm still me. Saul's position has everything to do with what's going to happen to him. For one, Saul is not horizontal or bedridden. And frankly, friends, neither are you today, and praise the Lord for that. I bet it's something you seldom praise the Lord for. Although there are many who are so stricken, that they will never be vertical or right side up. This man has a position in space. He has a position in society. His father is a mighty man of valor. It's the sort of thing that you might expect of a father of a son who might be king. See, if Saul's physical position were impaired, if he were not from a family that had donkeys... In some amount of wealth, he would never be on this journey, and he would never be en route to become a king. I just want to challenge you right now to reflect on your position. How different would your life be if you were bedridden? Our church plant at Trinitas is 10 years old. When we were gathering our first core group, my mom had broken her back nine months earlier on a boating trip. It was just a freak accident, really. We have some idea in our family what it's like to have someone whose position is horizontal and bedridden. What's your position? Do you thank God for it? Do you see his providence in it? But we move on. 
A second apparently random thing about you is your location, you might think. And here in this story, the location couldn't be more random. I don't think locations get more random than going on a wild goose chase trying to find where lost donkeys have led themselves. Random, you might say, is random can be. Where Saul finds himself is totally unintentional in this story. That is the point, and it is beyond his control. I wonder, I wonder, have you ever considered your location? Have you ever considered your places, where you are from, and how it has shaped you? And considered that it is not random, but the hand of God who brought you there. Born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. That's me. We have a trope of a rainy day that forces us inside for a different sort of activity. It will require of you activities like reading, reflection, and things to be very honest with you. You might do less of if you lived in Southern California. You have places that resonate with you. You have places that when you are instructed to think about heavenly bliss and glory seem like better analogies for that wonderful eternity than others. Your tastes of heaven are different than others' tastes of heaven. In the Bosserman family, when I was young, we had one vacation location that we went almost every summer, and it was Lake Chelan. I bet none of you have ever been there. You know, when you would approach Lake Chelan from Highway 2, you would round a corner where you'd get a sudden glimpse of the lake. That corner rounding, you might say, is for me a little taste of heaven. This thought that around every corner and for eternity there will always be a more splendid view in the presence of the infinite and eternal God. There are probably as well places on this globe that some of you, especially those who have suffered abuse, that you would never like to see again. And guess what? Good. What a revelation that hell exists. There are places and there is an eternal place that you would not want to be. But what about time? Have you ever asked the question, why am I right now? I'm not asking what is the cause we know the cause for why you are right now. It's your parents and the particular timing of your conception. But what's the reason? You look at Saul's place in time, and there are some fairly obvious observations to make. Had he been born a thousand years prior, even 50 years prior, Israel would have no king granted to her by God. Had he been born thousands of years later, well, there's probably no way he would be searching for donkeys. When's the last time you saw a guy searching for donkeys? I mistakenly asked that question at my church, and uh, one of the families from Sultan told me actually last week. And I <laughs> blew my mind. Maybe some of you could actually tell me the same thing. But it's very clear that this man would not be taken to a place to be made king if he lived in a different time. And I ask you the same about your timing. Have you ever considered your time? You know, the greatest generation, the generation in American history that's called the greatest, was the generation who found themselves in what time? <laughs> Amidst World War II. 
And it was the ills of the time that brought out of them a sort of courage, self-sacrifice, and valor that you would not otherwise have seen. Saul's time is similar. In Saul's time, the Philistines are afflicting Israel, and this tall man is going to be the man for the job at the beginning of her history. Time and timing, they're even a little bit scary when you think about it. Think about my wife. I think about how the the story of my life would be different if she hadn't moved up from Portland to go to Northwest University in Kirkland for a little while. That little while when I was there. Not only that, but when I first met my wife, um, she had said she was not looking for a relationship right now. Fortunately, I was well-versed enough in Christian ease to know that that really means I'm trying to let you down easy, but when Mr. Now shows up, it's going to be now. I knew that. Turns out that when I first asked my wife to go on a date with me, she said no three times in a row. Not like three different days, but literally bam, bam, bam in a row. I wonder if she would have said no one more time if I would have desisted in my efforts, because, young men, there's a point when persistence turns into being desperate. So don't believe that lie that you should never surrender. There is a time to surrender, okay? (laughs) How would you be a different you if your times were different? This is the question about Saul, and frankly, this is the question about all of us, and God's providence runs through it all. But on top of that, see, Aristotle thought that your possessions, what you own, are just accidents, hardly relevant to the real you. In fact, there's something of a mantra today, I am not my possessions, and there is truth to that, but here's the thing. You wouldn't be alive at all if you didn't have some possessions, notably something to eat and a roof over your head and clothing to wear. But your story would be different were your possessions different. Look at this story. There is no search if Saul's family doesn't own donkeys, and in fact, at a crucial turning point in the story, Saul and his servant realize you can't just go to a prophet. Ask him for some wisdom, especially about where your lost donkeys are, without some sort of gift to bring. Some of you might say, well, wouldn't the man of God, Samuel, just be nice? Well, if you read the previous chapters, you would see that this man is constantly burdened. He's busy judging Israel. He's a prophet. He's also a priest. And so, indeed, bringing a gift is important because it means that you're serious and your needs are serious. And it turns out the man of God just happens to have a quarter shekel. This possession inspires Saul to go a different direction than he otherwise would have. And I would simply ask you the same, have you considered God's providence in your possessions? Sometimes what you don't have can make you want more of that thing. I was a coin collector when I was a young man. If my dad had had 700 rare coins, I don't know if I would have been. What's the point? Sometimes what you don't have can make you want something less. I, for example, don't want a yacht. I have no interest. Some of you are like, that's just because you've never been boating. And I say, that's right. Probably. Probably. Our possessions have a radical effect on the little twists and turns in our life. It's true in this story. Have you considered this? 
Have you considered this? My interest in coin collecting meant that I went on, uh, I got interested in sleight of hand magic, my favorite type of which was coin magic. But when I grew out of that, I realized that my coins were valuable at Boom City, where I traded many of them for fireworks. I know, brilliant. That's my story. Beyond that, friends, there's something called passions. Now, I've got to define this word so you know what I'm talking about. This is a fifth apparent accident in Aristotle's worldview, but is essential to this story of God's providence. Your passions are any way in which you're affected. Sometimes we think of that positively like you might say, my passion is water skiing. I've been taken by this activity. It commands my interests. Sometimes we can speak of passions negatively, like when we speak about the passion of the Christ. Look at Saul's passions, how he is affected by others. He has been sent by his father. He's been afflicted by a failed surge. He is suddenly persuaded by his servant to consult a prophet. He is instructed by the prophet to attend a feast. Friends, have you ever stopped to consider how other people have shaped you for good or for ill? At every moment, as you live a domestic life, countless others are affecting you. The water in your faucet is there because people are doing work in the waterwork system without which there would be no water at all. The electricity in your home is the same. Your cell phone is dependent on these towers erected and maintained by others. Your food preferences are dependent on what others supply. Have you considered? Have you considered your dependence? You might only look at this in negative terms, and we have this tendency to do this in this day where politics reign supreme. Some of you look at the world, and you're a bit frustrated by the constant advertising by which you're affected. Being inundated with political ideas, told by different outlets what the news really is this week. Some of you have had, I hate to say, pseudo-epiphanies. We have words for this that are readily known. Some people are woke. You have been awakened to the idea that one race, one gender, one religion is controlling everything, and you are the victim of those causes. Others of you have been red-pilled. <laughs> you have the opposite perspective, that you've left the matrix, and now you can see that one progressive ideology is affecting everything, governing and controlling everything. And all of this is ridiculous because... There is the question of who is controlling the controllers. Do you really believe there's some group of people on this planet controlling everyone else who themselves are impervious to control? It's absurd. We're all being affected. We all have passions. And when you fear entities the way I've described, you're treating them as if they are God. This story is about how everything is subject to God's sovereignty. A demonstration of Proverbs 21.1, the king, his heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it, that's the Lord, wherever he wishes. Don't describe divine power to any human agency to trust it or to fear it. 
But we move on to consider our quantities. We're all defined by random numbers, years, height, weight, even words. Some of you are men and women of few words, others of many. Your quantity, you might have noticed, in whatever realm it fluctuates. We read about Saul's quantity. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. This is an ideal quality for a man who's got to be a king in an age where kings were at the helm of physical combat. Saul's height would have done him no good if people were in search for the next great horse jockey in Israel. Didn't know, tend to be shorter. His age is ideal for a king. It is very clear he's in his mid to late 30s. We say that because his oldest son actually is a commander in his army, so he's got to have a son in his late teens or 20s. That's where this man is in life. Have you considered how these details, your numbers, have shaped you? On one summer, my aunt and uncle took me and my, my two siblings, an older brother and younger sister, by one year, we're all one year apart, on a vacation to Long Beach, Washington. It was great. What wasn't great was when we went to the go-karts in Long Beach, Washington. You know that, that height measure that you have to stand by when you go to different parks to see if you can ride the ride? Turned out that my younger sister by one year was taller than me and could ride the go-karts as I stood behind the chain-link fence and watched. This was a character-building moment. Some, I heard some amens, praise the Lord. And so too are your numbers. They make a difference as to who you are. But we move on to consider actions, number seven, of these apparent accidents. These are the courses which you cons consciously decide to take, and you might think of those as closer to your identity than everything else that we've talked about. What I've chosen is more me. Saul engages in con conscious pursuits, but friends, what Saul is consciously pursuing is not where he ends up. He's a man just looking for donkeys. That's all he's doing. He's not ambitious for kingship. By the end of the story, he sits at the head of a banquet for a king. Samuel informed Saul that indeed the donkeys had been found. He might have thought that this story was over, but that's not the point of the story at all. And I would have you know just the same. So many of your deliberate actions and their actual results are utterly mysterious. See, the Bible teaches that we're free in the sense that we are not the product of mere material causes. The choices we make are unpredictable and incomprehensible. And that's why, friends, things like the 2016 election can surprise so many people despite all of the best analytics that we have out there. Human decision-making is deeply mysterious, and it is, again, free from material causes, but um, it's not more free than the sovereign God. Beyond the reasons that you have for your every single action, God has his reasons. God calls us to actively pursue noble ends like obeying our Father to find his donkeys, but friends, we live life with an asterisk that it may turn out that God's ends are quite different than our intentions. My goal in church planting was to see the advance of God's kingdom and especially the Reformed faith take root much deeper in the Pacific Northwest. Especially during the early years when our budgets were terribly low, I was 
regularly confronted with the sobering possibility that it may be God's desire for the Lord to have me demonstrate to a congregation of 70 or 80 how to lose well, how to not carry out your intentions well. Every last one of us has to consider that God's purposes run through our actions, our deliberate courses, and have deeper purposes than what we expected. The last thing I want to consider, well, is our quality. Our external appearances, our skills, our habits, our disposition, and most of all, our moral character, that, we would think, is really defining who we are. The real us. A man's qualities get confused because we can be good at some things and merit for ourselves the description, a good guy. But they get melded with all other sorts of things, like our skillfulness or whether we're attractive. Have you ever noticed in cartoons the good guys are always also attractive? <laughs> Why is that? These things are called accidents because all the things that you think of as your qualities, they change as well. They shape you. We look at this passage, it says that Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man is what your English Bibles may read. really says a good man. It says that there was not a more handsome man in your English Bibles, but there wasn't a better man, is what it says in the Hebrew, among the sons of Israel. The point of these descriptions is that Saul is good and better than all the rest. Frankly, even in his moral character, as we as human beings can evaluate it. He is a man than which there is not a better. And God's point is this. He's calling exactly the sort of man that we would all elect to have as our king. But the point as this story goes on in Samuel is that moral character can change. How many role models have proven to be the opposite in your own lifetime? It wasn't five years ago that Will Smith was thought to be an upstanding exception in Hollywood. How many of our role models turned out to be apparent scoundrels? Our qualities make a difference in the course of our lives. This is clear in this story with Saul. I would simply ask you, what is your quality? What are your skills? How have they changed? What is your character? your moral character. Whatever you might think it is, I just would point this out. Questions like, how cruel could you be if you were rewarded for it, are difficult to answer. How selfish might you be if you had more to be selfish over? How indulgent in every sin from drunkenness to sexual sin to laziness to pride might you be if you knew you wouldn't get caught? The bad news of this sermon is that um, you have no quality that can commend you before God on the last day of judgment and draw out of Him a positive assessment of your being. Aristotle was dead wrong that you have some essence that is pure and holy, the real and undefiled you, despite all your actions, all your qualities, all the events of your life. In fact, our quality... It justly taints us in the sight of God forever. And this, 
I said last before, this is my real last consideration, and that's your relations. Aristotle thought of relations as just barely real at all. Right now you have a bunch of relations, spatial, personal, familial. You have people you're sitting next to. You have people you work for. You have friends. And I want to tell you something. If you had different relations than the one you do, you would be a totally different person. Aristotle is 100% wrong. Your relations have everything to do with your identity. Friends, if I told you that the apex of this story is that Saul was being adopted, how many of you would go, yes, that's patently obvious? Friends, that's what's happening here. In the final verses of this chapter, we read that Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place to eat at the head of those who were invited, who were about 30 men. Probably something close to two men from every tribe of Israel. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said, set it aside. And then the cook took up the leg, the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And what you're hearing and what you're reading in your mind is probably just an instance where he gets a really good piece of meat. You play video games like The Legend of Zelda. You find food and it's got a bone sticking out of what looks like a ham. You guys have maybe seen that before. I know you young people have. Here's the thing about that meal. God had said in Leviticus chapter 7 that the leg of a sacrifice belongs to Aaron the priest and his sons as their due forever. Samuel the priest is making Saul his son, and he is magnifying that point by giving him a bit of food that a priest could only give to his boy. If the point were too subtle in this chapter, it is abundantly clear in the next. Just six verses later into chapter 10, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will come mightily upon you, Saul, and you shall be changed into another man. Saul's being made a son. For the rest of the Bible, the office of king will be closely related to the office of priest because these two officers have the power to execute. The former executing a sacrificial substitute, the latter executing criminals. And that is why, friends, the New Testament says that civil rulers are secondary ministers of God. Romans 13, 1-7. I'm going to tell you something. The most important thing about you is what Aristotle mistakenly calls an accident, and I would ask you this. Do you have a relationship with God as your Father, Christ as your Savior, and the Holy Spirit as your Comforter? Because neither your humanity, nor your gender, nor your height, nor your weight, nor your time, nor your age, nor your skills, neither what has happened to you, nor anything that you have consciously done, nor your character, nor where you're from, Neither your position, nor your status, nor your possessions, nor your wealth will commend you to God. Only your relationship to Christ Jesus will matter as it has been orchestrated by God's providence 
running through every detail of your life. I would simply ask you today, believer, have you meditated on the providence of God in your life? How he has used every single detail, your humanity, your gender, your height, your weight, your time, your age, your skills, what's happened to you, what you've done, your character, where you're from, your position, your status, your possessions, your family, to bring you here. First of all, in Jesus Christ, but here to this house on the Lord's Day to worship. In just about a week, you guys are going to have the Lord's Supper. The Lord has led you to that table to declare that you are his son and his daughter, no less than he led Saul to that consequential table. A table for kings to declare him the first king of Israel. Friends, maybe you came here today with hardly any intention at all to hear the good news. Maybe you've lived your life with hardly any intention to accept the gospel. What you and I are inclined to call nine accidents, even an infinitude of random events, rather have been things that God, God's providence has used to make you His Son. If you do something this Lord's Day, I hope you take some time to reflect on God's providence in your life. Bow your heads with me. Mighty God, we know that in your story, in your plan, there are no accidents, but we confess that when we survey our lives or we even survey the day, everything seems mundane. Lord, we even succumb to the judgment that it's purposeless. We've already come confessing our sins, and for this as well, we confess we need a Savior. We come now asking for sanctification by your word. To give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart ready and willing to meditate, and able to see your providential love for us. God, may we go forth today celebrating our status as your adopted children. In Jesus' name we pray by your Holy Spirit. Amen.